If we're friends on Twitter or Facebook, you may have noticed something I shared earlier this week uh, that hopefully, um, hopefully somewhat impacted you uh, and gripped your heart as much as it did mine. I tried to utilize social media as much as possible uh, for a variety of different reasons, and one is to hopefully uh, spur us on to know what to think about and to celebrate and to reflect. Um, and uh, there's something I posted earlier this week uh, that was informing you uh, about Pizza Week. Pizza Week. Uh, I never knew that it existed, but apparently if Hallmark can create holidays, well, Tim and Nina Zagat, founders of the infamous Zagat survey, which reviews restaurants, claimed the week of September 23rd of last year that it was, in fact, Pizza Week. Like I said, I never knew it existed, but I wholeheartedly support and welcome uh, such a celebration. How many of you would agree with me, I mean, you like you some pizza? Do, do, do you like pizza? I love pizza. I really do. I, I, I love, I like it hot right out of the oven. I like it room temperature. If it's been sitting out for a bit, I mean several hours, it grosses my wife out, whatever. If it's been sitting out for a while, it's fine. It's fine. It's almost untouchable. I mean, it, or you, 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 can't, you can't hurt this. And I like it, check, I like it first thing in the morning right out of the fridge. I like it first thing in the morning right out of the fridge. I love it for breakfast. If that grosses you out, well, Deal with it. It's, 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 it's good stuff, and don't knock it till you try it. Right out of the fridge. I love pizza in just about any, for any meal, at any temperature. Now, if you have a pen and paper, uh, take out a pen and a piece of paper. You may want to write down what I'm about to tell you, because what I'm about to tell you is in addition to what's in your outline, it's in addition to the sermon, uh, the, the sermon itself, and, it's, and you don't have to put any extra money in the, in the offering box. I'm going to tell you the top three pizza establishments in our area that you should frequent, maybe even right after church. And this is, this is a pretty, pretty big deal. I'm officially endorsing three pizza joints in a sermon from the pulpit on a Sunday. It probably counts for more than we realize. Now, I, I, I've got, and so it's, it's taken me eight years. I've been here now eight years, and I've found my favorite pizza places in the area. Now, I eat at Donato's, and I eat at La Rosa's, and I'll even, even eat at Papa John's and, or... or, or and that's fine, but I, this is where the, the, the pizza snobbery comes out. It's very subtle. I call it Donato's. I call it La Rosa's. I don't call it pizza. So if, if, I, Sarah, if I'm like, hey, Sarah, do you want to bring home Donato's? She's like, yeah, okay, sure. Hey, Sarah, do you want to bring home La Rosa's? Like, yeah. But if I say you want me to bring home pizza, it's coming from one of these three places. So if you've got, if you've got a pen and paper, here's the deal. The best brick oven pizza in the area is in Newport, and it's a place called Strong's Brick Oven Pizza. It's on Monmouth Street, between 3rd and 4th Streets. It's just south of the levee. You can't beat it with a stick. It's the best brick oven pizza in the area. Brick oven. Now, if you're in Covington or OTR, uh, the best pizza, bar none, Goodfellas. Okay, it's the best tasting. It's the best size. It's about a 20-inch pie. It's, it'll, it'll change your life. It is Goodfellas Pizza. If there's one in Covington, there's one in OTR, there might be others. I don't know. But if you're in either of those places, that's where you need to go. If you're in the Florence area, you need to go elsewhere, quite frankly. Uh, but if, but you, can, you, can, you can drive to any one of those two places, or probably the closest to, to this area is uh, a place called Noche's that not many people know about. Every time I talk to somebody, they don't know about it. But it's on Barnwood Drive, it's in Edgewood, and it is the best pizza in this area. If I am ordering pizza, if I'm bringing home pizza, I'm bringing it home from one of those three places. If, I, if I'm ordering uh, something else from another establishment, I call it by the name 
There you have it. And you may disagree. You may disagree. We still live in a, a free-ish country, and uh, you have every right to be wrong, which is totally fine. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. But those are the best pizza places in the area. Uh, sometimes if people are headed to uh, New York City, they'll often they'll say, hey, you're from New York. You know, where, where, where should I get pizza? And the answer is basically this. Anywhere. Try to mess up. Anywhere. You will, you will enjoy yourself a good slice, of, good slice of pizza. But if you're going to be in Times Square, which most tourists at least spend some time in Times Square, I tell them they must eat, they must eat at John's Pizzeria, uh, which is the best brick oven pizza in the city, West 44th and 8th. You must, you must, must eat there. More on, more on that later. Subject change. We're starting a sermon series today called The Church. And uh, Lord willing, it'll last throughout the summer. And each sermon will be the church and something. The church and politics. The church and psychology. The church and its mission. The church and politics. And I have the opportunity today to tee it up with a message entitled The Church and Her Place in History. But the overall series comes with some questions that we use as some taglines for the series that you may have seen online or in the little sermon promo cards we put in the bulletin. Questions like... Is she obsolete or on the move? Or is she a fading fad or a force to be reckoned with? And maybe, maybe you read that and you're thinking, wow, I'm really excited for this series. Or maybe you read that and you're thinking, pastors are so melodramatic. Like, wow, calm down. Just preach the series. And, and granted, pastors admitted, guilty. We tend to overstate things in order to illustrate a point. In fact, sometimes the hardest part of sermon prep for me is not necessarily what to say, but how to Say it. What does the text say? And then how do I want to say that to our people in a way that would bless them and edify them and glorify God? So we think about those things. But perhaps you look at these questions and you think it's, it's just a hook. They're not legitimate questions. It's just a hook to whet our appetites. And in part, that's true, without apology. It, it's, it's, it is kind of a hook and supposed to be a bit provocative that you look at that and you think, oh, I wonder, wonder what this is going to be about. But I do think they're legitimate questions. I do think they're legitimate questions. As I uh, live life, much like you, and engage with the culture in which we live, and serve as a pastor, and talk to friends, and family members, and co-workers, and neighbors, and read the news, and see what's going on, I think these are very legitimate questions. And that's the first thing that I want you to understand as we kick off the series, that these are legitimate questions worth spending our time answering, and answering from the Word of God. I mean, let's face it. There is no denying that our culture is trending more and more hostile to the faith. I mean, there's no denying that. You'd have to be an ostrich with your head in the sand to say, oh, I don't really see that. Our culture is trending more and more hostile to our faith all over the world. A Sudanese woman uh, was uh, sentenced to 100 lashes and death by hanging... For marrying a Christian man. And when she was sentenced, uh, I'm told uh, from what I read that she stood there with her husband uh, in the same room, and as her sentence was read out, um, she didn't flinch. It never crossed her mind to deny her faith, which would have would have had the sentence totally, totally changed, and she could have just be, become a Muslim, and she would have been fine. She didn't flinch. Her husband lost it. Her husband lost it, just became unglued as he heard about what the fate of his wife was to be. But she never, ever flinched. She was pregnant at the time, and uh, just this past week gave birth uh, to a beautiful, healthy child. 
while in shackles. And unless things change, she'll, she'll not see her child grow. Now, perhaps you hear that and you hear stories like that and you say, that's absolutely tragic. That's horrific. But that's over there. I'm over here. I mean, I live in a country that's not perfect, but still, at the end of the day, we, after all, we are one nation under God, right? I mean, our money, it says, in God we trust. Well, I'm 35 years old, which means I've now lived through six presidents. This past election didn't even have a, 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 a professing trying to act like born-again Christian candidate. Do you, do you realize that? It was a non-issue. Uh, apparently, it's not that helpful an issue any, for campaigning anymore. Uh, one candidate seemed to stand for more of what I stand for about issues, so I cast my vote accordingly. However, if you ever have the opportunity to meet either President Obama or Mitt Romney, bring a gospel tract with you to both. Now, our current president likes to nod his head in assent to Christianity and yet chooses to end speeches given to our country's largest provider of abortions with, and I quote, thank you, Planned Parenthood, God bless you. Perhaps you recall the invocation given at our president's inaugural address. And the original plans were to have Louis Giglio pray at the inauguration until someone found a statement he made 20 years ago having to do with what the Bible says about homosexuality. He was immediately replaced with a pro-gay Episcopalian pastor who prayed, quite frankly, a joke of a prayer. And the Associated Press looked on the situation and said, quote, there may be no clearer reflection of this moment in American religious life than the tensions surrounding prayers at President Barack Obama's inauguration. The leader of our nation who boasts inclusion, acceptance, and tolerance for all Americans does not include Bible-believing Christians in that group. What is commonly referred to as Christian Judeo values or Judeo-Christian ethics was the foundation for a moral infrastructure for the society in which we live. The church and its leaders were welcome in society at large at one point in time. People spoke about what was known as the common good. Instead of religious organizations and people being targeted by our government, they were given incentives to do the good that they did as nonprofits, organizations, and such. Now, I'm not saying that meant more people loved Jesus and were going to heaven back then. You understand that? I'm not saying that. I'm just telling a story. Only God knows the heart. Only God judges the heart. I'm really just saying this, that the overall common belief among people, particularly and especially in our nation, used to be more influenced by the things of God than they are now. I think that's a fair statement. In general, fornication was frowned upon. There was no need to define marriage because there was never a question as to what it was. There was never a need to decide if it really would be best for children to be raised by their God-given parents, a man and a woman. It just was. Pornography existed and was used, but most people at least considered it wrong. It was taboo. That's simply not the case anymore. Our culture 
every day trends more and more and more and more and more hostile to the faith that we claim. But seriously, if you ever go to New York City, you've got to eat at John's Pizzeria on 44th Street and 8th Avenue. Long before I ever ate there, a man by the name of Albert Benjamin Simpson used to hang out there. Worked there, in fact. He was a Canadian preacher and theologian who pastored there in the late 1800s. He later went on to found the Christian Missionary Alliance, the only remnant of the fact that the place that houses my favorite brick oven pizza in the city of New York, the only remnant of the fact that that was used to be a church are the stained glass windows that you would enjoy as you enjoyed your meal there. Great pizza. Beautiful setting. But let's call a spade a spade. It's a dead church. And as I, as I enjoy the food there, really enjoy it, really miss it, there's a twinge of sadness as you sit there and realize this was a place at one time in which the gospel was preached and is no more. Our kids used to take swim lessons at the Y, and most of the time uh, Sarah took the kids. Sometimes I'd get an opportunity to take them if it fell on a day that I was off or something. But one of the times that I was there, I ended up somehow in a conversation with another parent who I think she saw something I was reading or heard a phone conversation and put the pieces together and figured out as a Christian and a pastor and said she was a pastor's wife and she spoke of some uh, struggles and difficult times for them but said she was hoping for the best for their then small church plant. And I said that I would uh, you know, certainly pray for them and, and uh, hope that God would bless their efforts. We still go to the Y. She does not and the church is no more. It really does, I mean, I could go on and on, but time, we don't have enough time, but it begs the question in these recent days, in these last days, is the church a fading fad? Is she obsolete? The question we ask ourselves today and throughout this series is, a new, is not a new one. Our Lord's brother Jude opens his epistle with these words in verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered for the saints. Sometimes we read words like this in the scripture and there's an undeniable call to action. Apparently Jude would have liked to have written about the faith all believers share and the blessings associated with being in Christ. We see that earlier in verse 3. I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation Uh, But he found the circumstances he was facing necessitated him to write about something different. The apostate teachers creeping into the church and teaching heresy caused him to take a change of direction. And he changed his plans and wrote a very different letter. One in which he starts out very clearly, very boldly, exhorting his readers to contend earnestly for the faith. And if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, if you've been saved from above, if you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and that God has been satisfied for the payment that he paid on the cross on behalf of sinners like you and like me, that his wrath has been appeased, that that payment has been paid, and that we serve a living Savior who has risen from the, de- from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the, of the Father. If you are a Christian today, brothers and sisters, the word of God in Jude echoes as true today as it did when it was first penned. 
So the question is, what, what about you? And what about, what about me? What about us? Will we contend? Will we contend? Athletes contend, right? They strive earnestly. They work hard. And not just aimlessly, not just because. Towards a goal, to win. Will the church, will the saved, will the called, will the redeemed, will we contend? Because as I look around, there's absolutely, positively no reason on earth for us to believe that easier days are ahead. That walking with King Jesus is going to be a stroll through life. I don't see that hope. But we're not without hope. You you understand that? We're not without hope. If you put your hope in better days, if you put your hope in circumstances changing, if you put your hope in people thinking differently in society and your life becoming easier, yes, you are up a creek. You are without hope. We are called to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered for the saints, the saved, the church of Jesus Christ. And praise be to God that come what may, victory is as sweet as it is certain. So we may not sit by, so may we not sit by idly. May our lives not be such that the only impact we make is by way of a Facebook post expressing our disdain with the days in which we live. Or an exaggerated eye roll at something someone says. But may we truly contend. May we truly fight. May we truly represent well our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, and King Jesus Christ. You got questions? I got tons of them. Who doesn't? But praise be to the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have answers for every question we need answered. Do do you understand that? There's questions that I have that I cannot find the answers directly within this book. It's like, what's going to happen next? I don't know exactly what's going to happen next. But everything I need to know, everything I need to know, not want to know, everything I need to know is contained within the pages of Scripture. We're not a people without hope. We're not a people without help. We're not a people who, des- who are desperately wondering what our role is as the church and where our place is in history. So today, to kick off our series, my goal isn't simply to be a doomsday prophet. My goal isn't simply to be a pizza prophet. I, I want to give us hope. I want to give us help. And for that, I want to look at God's Word as we seek to learn what the church's place is in history. Now, in order to do that, we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at some key texts throughout the book of Acts. So if you would turn there at this time, we'll prepare to see what God's word has for us today. Turn to the book of Acts. And basically what I'm doing is this. I thought the best use of our, the title of the sermon is The Church and Her Place in History. And I thought the best use of our time would be to look at how has God used the church according to biblical history, and what was her role there? What was her role? So right now, we're in perilous times, we're in terrible times, but quite frankly, I don't think, at least for us living here, I don't think they light a candle to what I see in the pages of Scripture as I look to the first century church. I'm not saying that that means we have it easy, I'm saying that means we have it easier. So if I can look back and see what role did the church fill uh, throughout church history and starting right at its very inception when the church was just a baby little church... How did God use the church during perilous times? 
I think that we would be well served by the word of God to say, well, then what's the role for us as a church today? What is our role throughout church history? Let's look back on church history to see how did God use the church and be encouraged from the word of God that the church will not become a piece of history, but that we can look and see how God has used her throughout uh, her life to glorify himself and to edify others. And as I do that, I want to give uh, thanks. I told him I would do this. I want to give public thanks to a friend of mine who's a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville named Dr. Michael Haken, who is a professor of church history, who I had the privilege of meeting when he uh, took it upon himself to fly to a small church in New York City and uh, teach a seminary class that we could take for credit uh, on church history, which revolutionized, on church history and the book of Acts, which revolutionized the way I look at the Acts of the Apostles and the way I look at, quite frankly, the entirety of the Word of God and our role as the church. So I'm thankful for him and the time that he's taken to both teach and to uh, come alongside me and share a meal with me about a month ago and talk about this very sermon. So I'm indebted to the Lord for his service to him and to me. Having said that, uh, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask God to bless our time in the word today. Lord, we look out our windows and see no real reason to hope. Um, We look at life circumstances and don't find the help that we need. But we come before you today still being able to wholeheartedly worship and celebrate and sing and rejoice because at the end of the day, those who love you and have faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, those for whom you have set your love upon, we have every reason to rejoice because our greatest real problem has been taken care of. And come what may, Lord, I am in Christ. And I thank you so much. I thank you so much that we are acquainted with words like mercy and grace. Thank you for unmerited favor. Thank you for giving us more than we deserve. And thank you that at the end of the day, at the end of our life, the victory is certain. But Lord, we come to you now uh, asking you for help now. Lord, we want to understand your word so that we might Uh, rightly divide the word of truth in order to rightly represent you in the life that you give us now. Lord, we don't want to just sit idly by uh, in this life that you've given us, this brief life that is a vapor, um, and not represent you well. We long to represent you well. We long to speak the name of Jesus. We long to tell others about the grace and mercy that we've received. So show us, uh, we pray, Lord, from the pages of Scripture, our role as the church. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would convict us, and that you would spur us toward love and good deeds uh, for your great name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Acts, as we've said before, written by Dr. Luke, who fancied himself a historian of sorts, and writes this book similarly to volume one, which is the gospel bearing his name. Now, the result is the historical narrative that we look at today. If you get a dozen people in a room and ask them, what is the role of the church? What is the purpose of the church? Or better yet, what role has the church served throughout history? I bet you there's a chance you'd get a dozen or a baker's dozen uh, different answers. Nowadays, the church is called upon to do many things and criticized for not doing certain things. And everyone's everyone's got a different take on what the church should be doing with her time on earth. And what I hope to do 
is show you six places throughout the Acts of the Apostles in the time that we have left. Six places throughout the Acts of the Apostles that show that uh, historically the church has best functioned and flourished as this. The bearer of the word of God. That the church is called to be the bearer of the word of God. Yes, the church will do many things, ought to do many things. But at the end of the day, one purpose, one calling, one thing is primary. You can put many things in the top five, top ten. There's only going to be one number one. And I think from the pages of scripture, what I hope to convince you of, because I'm convinced of from the word of God, that the church is called to be the bearer of the word of God. And the church serves the Lord best when she's remembering and functioning uh, who she has been called to be. So let's first look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And what we're going to do is look at, quickly, six different accounts throughout the book of Acts. And we're going to simply try to do this. Define the win. Define the win. In other, in other words, what happens in this text... What was the result of what happened? But really, what was the win? What does Scripture tell us the win is? Not what do you think is really cool about it. Not what do I think is really fun. What do the Scriptures say the win is? If that's confusing, hopefully it'll clear up as we move along. But for now, look at Acts chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. We read these words. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying... There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, and this saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So here's the deal. Uh, we're told right in verse 1 that things are, we would think things are going well, right? Verse 1 says, uh, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. So, uh, the believers, are, the number is growing. More people are coming to faith. Praise God for that. But the church, just like today, was not without its issues and without, without its problems. Uh, there was a problem, and that was Hellenistic Jews... Basically, Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution because uh, they wouldn't have found favor with the Palestinian Jews who were handing out the things that they would have in common. These were not just Hellenistic Jews. These were Hellenistic Jewish widows who did not have the means to support themselves. So they were being neglected in the distribution of funds, okay? The distribution of funds that they needed in order to make ends meet. And this was not good. Um, and these were widows, and, and rightfully so, the church was to come alongside to help them in their time of need. But we're told this certain group of widows was being neglected in that distribution, so the issue came to a head. So the twelve gather together, verse 2, uh, the twelve gather together and say, it's not right that we should stop preaching to handle this. Now, sometimes you can read that in English, and, and, and especially for the translations like I just read that say, it's not right that we should wait on tables or serve tables. 
it, what, what they're basically saying, they're not saying they're above it. They're just saying, we've got to preach the gospel. We've got to be stay very focused on the word. We can't handle these financial matters. Otherwise, we'll become the jack of both trades, but the master of none. So we're busy doing this. It's not that we don't care because of what we read next, right? So go and find for yourselves seven men full of, uh, who have a good reputation, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and who are wise, so that they can solve this problem. Very real problem, but it's not all about us. We're going to stay focused on this. We want you to find for yourselves uh, seven people. And so they did, and that basically takes you to verse 6. They pick, the, they pick people, the apostles approve, they pray for them, they lay hands on them, and off they go. Now you'll notice between 6 and 7, we're never told how they solved the problem. Uh, we're never told what they did in order to uh, bring these groups together. But we assume that the problem was solved. Luke didn't find it important enough to say, now let me tell you exactly how it happened. Let me tell you exactly how these needs were met. Let me tell you exactly how this problem was resolved. But he did find it important enough to say what's in the very next verse. Look at verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Let's define the win. If the account ended in verse 6, and you said, okay, well, uh, okay, they, uh, they, they, they found these men, they set before the apostles, they prayed, they laid hands on them. If the account ended in verse 6, we may be, to believe that, be led to believe that the win was simply solving the problem, right? That the win was that there was a problem, and the church met it, so the win there is church meeting problems. Now, listen to me. There's certainly a role that the church has in benevolence. There's certainly a role that the church has in help, helping others, especially those who fall under financial duress, especially those, in my opinion, who are single moms, wives, ladies who fall under financial duress. I do think that is one of the roles that God calls us to as a church. However, define the win. Luke defines the win for you in verse 7. That as a result of these actions... It's not that uh, many were made financially whole. As a result of these actions, the church was able to continue to function as she intended to. And in verse 7, we see that the word of God spread. The number of the disciples greatly multiplied in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Do you see my point? So I'm not saying that the, the, the goal of the, that, that the church functioning in the way that she did is not to help others. Because I think, I think that that is a role that we have. But define the win. Luke defines the win in verse 7 and says, you know why this was a win? Because a great many of the priests were brought to the faith. Priests are people of influence. They then help us spread the gospel. The church grew. The word of God spread. Do, do, Do you see that? That's the goal. That's the win. That the word of God spread and that the disciples were multiplied. The church functioned in a benevolent way. The church met a need in a God-honoring way. However, the church's main goal is to spread the word of God. So taking this action of love and benevolence helped the church to meet that goal as being the bearer of the word of God. Does, does, Does that make sense? The motivating factor, the impetus behind that was not solely, don't hear what I'm not saying, it was not solely benevolence. It was evangelism and it was the word of God. And if the church did not make this benevolent move, the ministry would have been halted. So they made this benevolent move. They blessed the people who were in need. And the word of God spread. You with me? That's that's the point. Let's look at another one. Acts chapter 9. Skip over three chapters to Acts chapter 9. 
The beginning of Acts 9 records Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul, records his conversion to Christianity, after which he immediately began preaching the gospel in the temple, um, probably at one time that he would have shown up to persecute Christians. And Saul comes to Jerusalem <coughs> excuse me, and tries to join the other Christians, the other disciples, but they're leery of him. And quite frankly, can you blame them? I mean, so here's this active terrorist against the faith known as Saul, who now shows up and says, no, but seriously, I'm a Christian. And they're like, yeah, the heck you are, dude. You're going to kill us. So they're leery of him. But he's got Barnabas with him, whom the disciples do know and do trust. And Barnabas is there to help. He's a great help. He's there to help Saul uh, prove the authenticity of his profession of faith. So pick it up in verse 26. Acts 9, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, which is understandable, and did not believe that he was a disciple. Understandable. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them, now listen to what he declared to them, okay? He doesn't just say, guys, hey, he's with me, don't worry about it. What did Barnabas declare to them? Look at the text. He declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. So between 27 and 28 you see that Barnabas says, no, 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 this is why you should believe. First of all, yes, he's with me, that's helpful. But you have to understand, let me tell you how he was converted. Let me tell you that he spoke face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what the biggest thing that he told them was? Let me tell you how this man preached. And do you know why that was a big deal? Because that was the one thing, one part of that story that showed that Paul was putting his money where his mouth was. Because in order for him to preach, he was risking his life for the gospel he claimed to believe. Did you understand? The part of the story before that is just a story. No, trust me, he's a good guy. He's not the terrorist you think he is. Why? Well, because he had a dramatic conversion. Okay, well, that doesn't show us anything. No, seriously, he spoke to Jesus face to face. Barnabas, did you see it? No, I wasn't there. Okay, but you don't understand. I've heard him preach. Oh, so he went public with this? Yeah, man, boldly. Wow. So he's willing to die for it. Ah, now I see. So looking at the text between 27 and 28, that's the conclusion that comes to the disciples' minds. They, oh, so it's not just that he had a dramatic experience, that's cool, it's not just that he spoke to the Lord face to face. That's like really cool. But he's willing to die for this. Evidenced by the fact that he preached publicly the gospel. And then we see in verse 28, he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. Verse 29, and he what? Spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. So it's not just something he did one day. Then he did it for them right then and there. What's the point? Well, Paul gains his acceptance among the disciples, not because of his dramatic conversion story when he was on the road to Damascus. It was his preaching of the word of God that convinced them of his genuine saving faith. It was the fact that he preached in Damascus and then preached boldly and continued to do so while with them in Jerusalem. So once again, it was the work, the word of God at work in the life of this new believer. This caused the disciples to accept him, but then to send him away for a time because his life was in danger. Define the win. What's the win here? Is it that Saul was accepted by the other Christians and now had more friends? No. I mean, that's a good thing, but that's not the win. 
the wind was that the word of God was so active in Saul's life that he preached it and then was sent away and the churches in the region enjoyed peace and were edified and again were multiplied. Do do you see that? Once again, the word is active in growing the church and multiplying the number of believers. Some people have dramatic conversion experiences. You might have had a very dramatic conversion experience, and that's great. Saul had a dramatic conversion experience. I've heard a lot of dramatic conversion experiences. They don't tend to light a candle to what Saul had, what happened to Saul as we read in Acts chapter 9. But what's the win? The win is not that Saul had this dramatic experience and thought it was really cool. The win is not that Saul then was blind and then went into the city. The win is that the end result, at the end of the day, the man preached the word of God and people were saved. And the word of God continues to prevail. Skip over another three chapters to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. As I, believe it or not, pick up the pace. Acts chapter 12. Let's look at verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. Having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So we look at this and we say, ain't nothing new under the sun. This happens all the time in our day and age. This is, this is international relations. This is politics. This, is, this guy's not happy with us and we quite frankly don't like him, but let's get in with his aid so that we can have a, see, a, a sit down with him so that we can, what I like to say, make nicey because he's not going to give us food if we don't. Nothing has changed. This is the exact same thing that happens nowadays with food and oil and whatever. But I digress. Look at verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. So they're sitting before Herod, listening to what he has to say. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Which translates to, we need your food, dude. The voice of a God and not a man. It's, I don't think it's that they were struck by this man and what he had to say. Oh, the voice of a God and not a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck, watch this. This is why I think what they said was baloney, okay? The angel of the Lord struck him, Herod. Why? Because he did not give glory to God. So it's funny. The people who were struck dead, it's not the people who said, oh, you're, you're a God. Because they don't really mean that. It's that. That's not the point. But it's because Herod said, well... I'm kind of a big deal. I'm Herod. I'm wearing this big robe. So, yeah. And just stood there and took the worship that they were ascribing to him. Verse 23. An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Which, it it could mean that he caught something uh, parasitic, which was from a worm. So then he died of worms. Or it could mean that a gigantic uh, earthworm stood up and ate him. I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. The bottom line is he died. Verse 24, define the wind. But the word of God grew and multiplied. What's the point? Well, Herod was dramatically killed by God, that's obvious. However, once again, Luke doesn't want us to miss the forest for the sake of the trees. The account doesn't end in verse 23. If it had, we might think Luke was telling us this because the Lord takes out his enemies in government. Or or that what is to be gained from this account is that we're to pray for the untimely and awkward death of our leaders in government because then God would be glorified if they were eaten by a worm. That's not the point. You understand? That's not the point. 
Luke adds verse 24 to make sure we keep the crosshairs on the main thing and not be distracted. And the main thing was that even with all this drama, even with all these politics, even with all this international relations mumbo-jumbo, all this heartache, all this evil, the word of God grew and multiplied. That's why I put that quote in your bulletin outline from one of my uh, favorite commentaries on the book of Acts. Despite the attacks on the church from the outside, the word of God continued to spread. This was more important than the fact that the persecutor of the church suffered retribution for his deeds. The work of God went on. The point of that is not saying, well, looky here, look at how Herod got taken out. Woohoo! That's small in comparison. Small in comparison to the fact that the work of God went on and the word of God prevailed. Quite frankly, who cares if Herod dies, right? What would have happened if he hadn't died then? He would have died later. I mean, that was inevitable. It was going to happen at some point. But the fact that with all this going on, and with Herod's persecution of the church, all of this going on, and the work of God still prevailed, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Turn over quickly four chapters to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Let's look at verse 1. Then he, Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him, go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Paul arrives at Derby and Lystra, meets this young man named Timothy, uh, hears of, uh, of, of his, his good reputation, verse 2, spoken well of by the brethren. So Paul said, I want you to come with me. Okay, takes him, realizes that he has a father who's Greek, so he wasn't circumcised, knew that that was going to be a problem as they encounter different Jews, has him circumcised so we can get that out of the way, and then look what they do at verse 4. As they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. What are those decrees? Well, they're in the previous chapter from the Jerusalem Council, where we see from the word of God that Jerusalem Council said, hey, here's what we believe, here is the truth of God, here's what you need to concern yourself with and what you don't need to concern yourself with. Focus on this. What's the result? Verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Paul and Timothy preached the word to the churches in these cities, and as a result, they grew in faith and Number. Do you see their focus? Do you see that narrow focus? What are we going to do? We're going to preach the word. What are we going to do? We've got stuff to say. And it's not our own stuff to say. It's the stuff that's in the previous chapter. It's the stuff from the Jerusalem Council. Let's get going. And as a result of that, we see in verse 5 that churches were strengthened and increased in number daily. Two more. Uh, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Hope you're with me. If you're with me, say I'm with you. Good. That's encouraging. Thank you. What if it was just silence? (laughs) That would have been so deflating. I don't know why I just did that. (laughs) Say you're with me. Let's close in prayer. Yeah, that's... Okay, sorry. Uh, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Let's begin in verse 11. 
Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Uh, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Verse 15, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them. Are you picturing this? Then the man leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, let's define the wind. Verse 18. And many who had believed came, what? Confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And once again, you could have seen it coming, verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What is the win here? Uh, it's the result of the believer's confession and repentance was more than just obedient living by those involved. Do, do, do you understand that? It's good that they confessed. It's good that others saw it and also said, we got to confess. And there was a big book burning, and that's really, really, really cool. But the end result was that the word of God increased and was victorious over the evil teaching. It's not just that people found their better life now. It's not just that people gave up sin, even though that's good. The end result was what? The word of God spread. The word of God increased and was prevailing over evil. And finally, one last passage in Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Chapter 28 and verse 28. says, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Verse 30, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Here we find Paul under house arrest. For his ministry, house arrest for his faith. And Luke abruptly ends the account here. He ends the book here. But he's careful in how he ends it. He didn't want the last picture of us to have to be one of poor Paul, right? Poor Paul is stuck with a first century police ankle bracelet. Poor Paul is confined to his home not knowing what his fate will be. This wasn't poor Paul. Luke says, yes, he was under house arrest, but that's not my point. My point is that God redeemed the time. Paul was under house arrest for two years, and he received those that came to him. And what did he do? Look at verse 31. He preached the kingdom of God and taught the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, and did so confidently and without hindrance. The word of God, get this. If, if nothing else, get this. The word of God is unstoppable. Absolutely, positively unstoppable. And that's our one secret weapon as the church. That's our what we're a bugle. You got one note. Word of God. Gospel. Word of God. Look at that quote I put in there from a commentary. It says, whatever be the truth, the fate of Paul is secondary to that of the gospel. Does that make sense? 
That, that's not what Luke wanted you to know. He's not focused on the fact that he was under house arrest. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The final pictures of Paul preaching to the Gentiles, the same message which he had preached throughout the Acts with boldness and without hindrance. All the emphasis lies on that last phrase. The implication is that the charges against Paul were false and that God backed up his proclamation. Nothing that men can do can stop the progress and ultimate victory of the gospel. The word of God prevails every time. And the preacher of the word of God and those who preach the word of God, they can be taken out. Their life is but a vapor. The word of God is unstoppable. And we have the word to prove that and we have history to prove that. And we can put all of our eggs in that one basket, the very word of God. What's the church's role in history? It's to be the bearer of the word of God. And if the church takes on another role that is good but secondary and loses that role, we don't have a ton of hope. Do do, do you understand that? If the church just becomes a means of benevolence, so like in Acts chapter 6, if the church just focuses on that, it's all they are. Word of God, yeah, but we help people. That's not what grew mightily and prevailed throughout the first century. Do we want to do that? Yes. Why? Because we care so much about the word of God. Do we want conversions? Absolutely. Do we want dramatic conversions? I mean, they're cool. Yeah. Insofar as what? They glorify the Lord and help the spread of the word of God. Put a quote in there from Martin Luther. It's one of my all-time favorites. He says, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything the best of men are men at best and he's saying I did nothing it was the word it was the word it was the word